water, water everywhere, nor any drop to drink. It's May 5th, and welcome to The Vegetable Beat, a live weekly discussion during the growing season for vegetable producers in the Great Lakes and Midwest region. I'm your host today, Ben Phillips from MSU. Mike Reinke is our Zoom engineer, pulling levers behind the curtain. Today, we're talking about water on urban farms. And I have two guests with me today, Naeem Edwards from MSU. He works at the Detroit Partnership for Food, Land, and Innovation. We call it DP Fly for short. And Micah Hutchison from the Genesee County Conservation District around Flint. Welcome, both of you. Thanks, Ben. Thank you, Ben. So we want to start, uh, or we want to get to any questions that you may have if you're joining us live today. You can join us for in through Zoom or Facebook, and in both cases, you can put questions in the chat or in the Facebook comments, and we'll try to answer them as we go or at the end. There are credits available for this podcast for certified crop advisors and also for restricted-use pesticide applicators. So if you do need those types of credits, you can put your information in the chat, and we'll get those to you. Okay, so let's get to it. We've got some questions kind of lined up for the guests here today. And uh, the first one is probably the most general, and I'll let you both take a a crack at it. And I think I'm going to direct it first at uh, Micah and then to Naeem, get your opinions, because you're both in two different cities in Michigan. And I I think different cities just have different scenarios and scenes. And when you leave Michigan, it gets even more different, but we'll do our best. So the first question I have for you is, why is water difficult to access in an urban environment for the purpose of farming? That's a great question, Ben. Um, So I can just speak about my experience in Flint. Um, Part of the reason water is so hard to access here has to do with where people are farming. So farming here is done traditionally, or not traditionally, but recently on vacant land. So housing used to be there 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And with that went the infrastructure for water. So house spigots, um, housing access. When the housing was torn down, that was removed. And therefore, when people are farming, they don't have like traditional access to water. They have to find creative ways or other ways to fill in where water isn't. Um, Growers here have also come up against the city sometimes. Mm -hmm. We've had in the past different laws that have made putting in infrastructure like wells hard in the city. And that has to do with our city zoning regulations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, The wells in the city, that's an interesting thing to think about. Like (laughs) you really have to be in a pretty unique situation and uh, to, to want to have to punch a whole new well in an area that's surrounded by infrastructure, but it's just that inaccessible. That's interesting to me. Um, all right. Well, Naeem, do you have anything to, to add to Micah's thoughts there? I would simply uh, possibly add that a lot of zoning ordinances and uh, urban policies prohibit uh, sometimes the rain catchment or uh, the, the presence of cisterns or water holding mechanisms on a site. Um, depending on what you're bordered by or the the surrounding area, it also might be difficult um, to run a hose potentially across a street. Um, and that there might just be urban barriers that also make accessing water, if it's not um, a valve or a spigot readily available on the site or property um, to transport water to where plants are being grown. Yeah, that's a good point. Do you know, do you happen to know what 
the rationale is behind limiting the use of rain barrels and cisterns? Is that like a like a mosquito abatement thing, or, or is there some other reason? Yep, I would say it's rooted in public health. Okay. Um, just for the sake of going beyond Detroit, I know in California, um, the state has a priority of increasing groundwater. And when houses and any kind of built structure is capturing the rainwater off of that structure, of course, it's keeping it from going back into the groundwater system, um, mm. actually illegalizing like rain barrels and things like that. Um, for Detroit specifically, I've heard that uh, the worry of people drinking from rain catchment systems is the kind of top concern. Okay. And unfortunately, or just for the sake of mentioning it, uh, similar to where Micah is, Flint, the water access issue for humans in and of itself is an inequity and an injustice that is worth addressing potentially in another podcast. Yeah. So if, yeah. if people who need water for their own usage see a rain barrel or something, and then they go to it to fill a bucket for something they're going to cook with or potentially drink. There's, of course, uh, the likelihood of algae and bacteria, um, potential parasites, uh, and just contamination in there that people don't want. Also, the surface that the water is running off of, I catch rainwater off of the roof at my home, and it always has like debris and the material from the shingle that gets into it. Mm-hmm. Of course, that's not something that a person would want to consume directly. And it might not be um, a stable material that you would want to add or incorporate into your gardens or plants either. Um, that actually came in the chat as we just opened up this question <laughs> okay. about whether asphalt single shingles have an impact <clears throat> on ve- mm-hmm. for vegetable gardeners that's worth thinking about. So I think that's it's mostly a gritty material that is is not considered a contaminant but it's certainly not something you would want to ingest directly. And I don't know what the chemical properties of most shingle is besides the fact that it does have some petrochemical and probably some kind of gravelly uh, rocky base as well. Um, The other reason that rain catchment is prohibited is also just, uh, as you mentioned, the nuisance of attracting pests, um, mosquitoes, insects, and being kind of breeding grounds for other kinds of potential pathogens and uh, critters that would benefit from having large amounts of water stored on potentially uncovered. That's another, sometimes there's, there's regulations that permit rainwater catchment, but the regulations for how it's captured and how it's stored um, kind of make up for the permission of doing it. So you might Mm. put a screen over it or have a lid on it or drain it. Um, completely, you know, every so many weeks or something like that. Um, so there's a lot of nuance in there. Okay. Yeah. I've seen some systems in the Lansing area that rely on um, a mini bulk tanks. They go by a lot of names. Mini bulk is the one I'm familiar with. It's like the big cubic mm-hmm. tanks that are wrapped in a, like a wire. They're often uh, repurposed off after carrying something else like sometimes like it's food flavor flavoring or something much less appealing, like formaldehyde. It's just strange stuff like that. And you got to make sure you know their history, uh, which adds a whole nother wrinkle to like what you're catching it in. Right. Um, But those often have like a narrow neck. So you can direct water more, um, more, you could even like cup it or cuff it in a way that like it prevents a lot of access to insect and stuff. But, but yeah, those are like 275 gallons. And so, that can 
that can uh, that can drain pretty fast if depending on the size of your garden. Like that's a big tank, and still that can go pretty quickly. So I've starting I've starting to see people in Lansing do like a double stack. Mm-hmm. So they've got over 500 gallons there, which is appreciable for a certain size garden. Um, so, um, Micah, you had mentioned about home infrastructure being removed in the case of a lot of vacant lots. And um, I understand that the the line that comes into the house from what's usually like a main that's under the street, mm-hmm. that is sometimes still there to like up to a certain length. I don't know much about it. Can growers tap into that? And if so, like, do you know much about where, how you might go about it? Um, so I know of one farm in the city that has tapped into that ground water line. Um, it does create some problems for growers because the biggest hurdle is you can't bring the line above the soil line. Um, oh. The city doesn't want other people to, like Naeem brought up before, using the water there's a safety and a public health issue around that. And the farmer has to be willing to crawl into a hole every time they want to turn the water on. So that access is there, but it kind of creates another barrier. Um, it's mm. not the safest way to access water. I think that there are better alternatives in okay. the city of Flint. Huh. Um, is it like that in Detroit as well, Naeem, where they, they, they're restrictive on how they can turn it on and off and get to it? Um, to my understanding, if there's a, there's a vacant lot with an, with an activatable supply valve, um, I've never heard of any examples and usually the the infrastructure is usually so deteriorative, um, but I'm not aware of any gardens or farms that use, um, use that. I do know of a farm that has a connection to the main water line. And then they actually have a really long, like six foot key that they can unscrew to drive um, and connect a hose to. Um, and that's within a city park. So be exceptions for, you know, depending on the location. Yeah, I've seen those too. And um, I wasn't sure how immediately accessible it was to, to get those keys. Um, but I have seen them and I've seen people use them like they own the key and they go and they open the valve themselves. Um, but that leads to one other question related to this. In order to um, take advantage of water in that fashion, it's city water, essentially. It would be billed like city water, I think. Maybe you can speak to that. But then does that also mean this farm that you may have needs its own address, like a billing address? Mm-hmm. Okay. And does the address usually still exist once the house is, is, is removed from that property or do you have to get a new one? Um, I can speak to at least uh, the farm that I work with that has access to that water infrastructure line. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a separate address that they're billed to. Okay. So the city has a meter on like the line. Mm-hmm. And they just meter for water usage. They don't have to pay like special assessments or sewer use. Oh, okay. And then the bill is sent to the head of the farm's home address, and it's paid that way. Okay. And um, this question for both of you, still related to this topic, if if using uh, that water, how what has been your experience with how a, a city or municipality views that in light of zoning? Would they consider this a residential use, commercial use? If it's if you've got a farm that you're you're, you know, selling produce, you could argue that's a commercial use, but it might be still residentially zoned. So do you get billed commercial for the water? How how have you seen that handled? I would say it's usually based on volume. And if you are 
a farmer, you would probably have to apply for a permit to use the water anyway. And in the permit application process, you would have to communicate kind of maximum uh, draw that you would take from the system on a monthly basis. Mm-hmm. Um, there in Detroit right now, I'm not sure where it is uh, legislatively, but there was a, uh, an effort to get farms that use water to get a different rate than commercial um, entities uh, with the understanding or the hope that the farm is using the water in a way that doesn't contaminate it as much. And it also is probably growing, if not for public benefit, um, just supporting local businesses and, and um, using the water more efficiently and effectively. Okay. And so all, all of this can, could still be used, this same structure could still be used if you've got a building that still has water coming from the street and you could use, you could tap into that. Um, so you'd have to make sure that you've, you've got, if it's not your building, you've got something lined up with that person, I would assume that could get wiry. Um, so there's another option that I'm aware of that I'd like to hear you guys talk about if you know more or you'd like to share your own feelings on it. But fire hydrants are everywhere in a city. Um, I'm not sure if the source of that water is any different than what would be coming in to your home uh, otherwise. But um, I'm aware of these the, these devices called reduced pressure zones or RPZs that can be attached to fire hydrants in a way that reduces the pressure to like a regular garden hose pressure. Um, do you know of any growers in your areas who have taken advantage of these or and if they have, what has been, what's the process like to get something arranged? Maybe um, you could take this first, Micah. Oh, okay. I, I'm definitely familiar with this process, um, both with Edible Flint and the district in the garden run space. That's how we water the garden. Okay. Um, they are attached to the hydrant. You take it with you. It's a really great option if you can uh, like get access to one. So while there are lots of benefits for the grower, there are some downsides in the city of Flint. And one of them is there's a huge initial cost to getting access to the meter. I see. So the past 10-ish years, the cost, you need a $350 deposit. Then you need about $100 for the turn on and the turn off services at the fire hydrant. And the process itself requires that you get permission from the water department, then get permission from the fire department, and then take that permission back to the water department to schedule a turn on date and pay your deposit. This year, the cost has went up to $590 for that access to the meter, the deposit, with an additional $100 for the turn-off, turn-on services. So it so, costs 200, like $200 now for the turn-off, turn-on? Total together, it's um, though $50 each. It's still that $100 oh. um, service fee, but that can be a huge barrier for like beginning growers or growers in our area to have around $700 just to access water is, I think, that's creating... A, oh, sorry, go ahead. Even just the deposit, like, so if you get your deposit back, $600 is a lot of money to have, like, at the beginning of a season when you have other costs, like compost or seeds or all the beginning season related cost. Yeah. Okay. But it's up, but all of it is basically one time fee. So you'd have to consider it almost like a lump. You have to, you know, save your pennies. Yeah. And 
you pay for it the one time though. You're not billed monthly like you would be on like a typical water bill then. Well, then you are billed monthly. Then you are billed so, monthly. Okay. So on the meter has like your water rate and it's billed like your residential. Again, you, we don't have to pay the special assessments on the water if you're just using the hydrant and you don't have to pay for sanitary sewer, but you still have to pay your water bill. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Why did I ask that? That makes sense. <laughs> Naeem, how, how does that work um, in your neck of the woods with, with hydrant access? Is it similar to what Micah's described? I don't have any direct experience, but I've heard that um, in addition to what Micah said, the user is also liable for any damage done to the RPZ or the uh, meter. So in addition to the cost that you're taking on, if you're using it during a freeze-thaw period and the water expands in there while it freezes and it cracks, or if you want to be, well, it's convenient. It's more convenient just to leave it out there um, or you don't want to be liable. Micah mentioned there's an installation and removal fee. If you're attaching it and disconnecting it, um, you know, if, if you're in an area where it might get damaged or something, if it's left out consistently, then that's just an additional worry and cost that that needs to be taken into consideration um so right now it overall just sounds like the rate and the expenses of using it well i guess it depends on if you're how much you're making with what you're selling um Mm -hmm. if you're just doing it recreationally then it it might be a little cost prohibitive okay so in the last two things we talked about both getting the water from the street uh, as a residential type arrangement and also tapping into the fire hydrant. Both of those are utilizing city water. And we had a question that came in on the chat um, about um, concerns about what the city water might be treated with. And um, if there's like a filtration system that you'd recommend before watering, it, and is, is that needed for watering vegetables with water that might have chlorine or fluorine in it? What do you think? So I just put a link in the chat for a product that Arbico Organic sells and it's um a small filter that I think you can get two different sizes, one that does about 10,000 gallons, which I would say for a garden, maybe in a 20 by 50 foot plot uh, would be about one season's worth. And then a 40 gallon would be if you had, you know, three, four times that or probably close to a quarter. Acre. Um, and then depending on how often, if you're using that every day, then you might need two in a season. Uh, but I, I always like to be careful around the words safe, needed, <laughs> necessary, you know, best, because there's, I think gardening does not have to be complicated or complex, but it's important as a human being with a complex mind to be willing to take into consideration uh, the variables that influence what makes you incorporate different things into your garden. So, you know, I usually operate from a, are people gardening because they need to grow food for their own diets? Are they gardening as a recreational educational activity for community engagement? Are you gardening because you're selling a product for profit? Um, So as it pertains to the filtration of water, uh, I would say that I am aware that fluorine and chloride and a lot of the chemicals that people put in treated water can be harmful to uh, the soil microbiome, uh, potentially uh, beneficial fungi, beneficial bacteria, um, small critters that live in the soil. But 
if the need for producing a couple hundred pounds of, or a couple hundred bushes, bushels of, or whatever you're producing, um, can be accommodated or alleviated by incorporating compost or using other kinds of chemicals to address the loss of the biological life, um, then it's, then it's a trade-off you might be willing to take on. If you're someone who's like, I'm all about super healthy soil. I want my soil to be full of thousands of organisms and have all the great, you know, beneficial mutualisms and relationships with my plants. Um, then I would say, purchasing a filtration system might be worth greater consideration. Um, but all that said, municipal water, to my knowledge, it functions perfectly fine. It produces large, healthy plants. Um, it can increase soil pH over time, but there's always um, other methods and tactics that can be used to address the issues of using it. So if it's, if it's what's readily available and you and whether you have the, the financial capacity to purchase it or not, um, it's certainly, there's no immediate threat for like drastic destruction of your garden if you use it. Um, <laughs> you and, handled you know, this, you're, you're handling this very well, Naeem. Yeah, yeah. it's the, it's the <laughs> same water to... we shower with and brush our teeth with. So You're not trying to, to push anyone's buttons here today, are you? <laughs> <laughs> Never. Um. I think we have a different experience when it comes to water. Um, yeah. I, I don't really hear a lot of concern about chemicals. Um, we're still trying to recover and get over that hurdle of heavy metals in our water. Mm -hmm. um, I see more gardeners and farmers concerned about what will lead in the water do to my farm or yeah. my crop or my backyard garden than worrying about chlorine. I, I've heard some people have like left out municipal water in like filled rain catchment systems with municipal water as a way to like help kind of evaporate some of that chlorine. Um, I've heard other things that may not be scientific, like adding vinegar to catchment mm. systems or something to bring down the pH, but mostly we're using a lot of filters still for lead. And yeah. Arsenic's another big one in Genesee County from Genesee County, all the way up into Thumb of Michigan. We're on, we're over this really interesting geological formation that is just naturally really high in arsenic. Um, yeah. and certain it's not uniform, but that is the ge geographic region in which it exists. And depending on well depth and various things that can be a real problem. So city water in Flint, I wouldn't expect arsenic, but in the wells that have been dug in some of those areas, you could see that. Um, that and PFAS. We have a mm. grower that has had it tested for PFAS being close to the old um, Buick City site. Boy. And so that's another concern. What will that water, how will that affect the farm? I'm not prepared to go into that, <laughs> Micah. Are you? No. <laughs> that's, that's a big one. <laughs> that's a tough one. I don't know. I'm not up to speed on that. Hmm. Well, um, you know, Naeem, you had mentioned something in your answer about pH being higher with city water. And um, I've heard that. I've measured it as well, but it's not so uncommon from a lot of the well water around Michigan. We have a, a calcareous bedrock in which a lot of our soils have a naturally high pH to begin with, and irrigating with a lot of our well systems in Michigan is also a high pH. So it doesn't seem that different to me. Um, different states are different, obviously, but uh, what's commonly done in larger agricultural countries is... Uh, fertilizers, just regular fertilizers, usually conventional fertilizers, salts and things like that have an acidifying effect over time um, after 
continual up application year after year. So that brings the pH down in the soils. And then you got to think about liming back up again. Um, and in hoop houses, the opposite happens where you irrigate so much in a hoop house and no rain flushes it out that you often end up with pH that increases like really quickly. So you've got these different things you need to do. Um, now in an urban setting, in a small farm setting, where you may need to make some adjustments to the pH of the soil, perhaps due to high irrig- high pH irrigation water or other things. What do you what are you thinking there? What do you recommend for pH adjustment? For this year, I'm trying uh, potash potassium sulfate addition to the compost that I plant with transplants and around already established perennials. Okay. Um, and I would say a month or two ago, I read an article about bokashi, which is a form of composting where you're fermenting. It's a liquid, right? It, it produces a liquid, but you can still use the solid material. You're essentially taking all your food waste, including meat and uh, bones and all that, and you're putting it in a container that's anaerobic, and then you're letting it break down inside this enclosed container, um, on that note, hopefully protected from pests and smells and all the things that people don't like <clears throat> or like to complain about with compost. And <clears throat> Bokashi produces both a higher acid compost finished product, but it also has um, a more acidic liquid compost juice, mm. if you will, that comes off of it. And my hope for, for this year is to just, well, I was going to say test. I wasn't planning to actually collect data Maybe I should. You should. <laughs> you should. And, he, and here's one Here's one reason why you should. Um, I failed to mention, and I hate for this to be like a two-on-one here, Naeem, but Micah and I are both part like food safety. We've, we've been food safety trained, okay? We know like some of the law. And outside of that, I'm sure there. Are, I, we both have opinions that are different, I'm sure. But as part of the new Food Safety Modernization Act, compost, amend, biological soil amendments of animal origin – um, but also compost. Have a, you got to jump through some hoops there. And the Bokashi throws up some red flags for me when you when you start working with meat. <laughs> it does. Oh, yeah. So, but there is a there is a cap uh, for when you need when you're on the line when you're on the hook for the Food Safety Modernization Act. And if you're under that, then uh, I suppose the sky's the limit. But that you need to scientifically validate composting to use the compost. Uh, most commercially produced stuff is scientifically validated. If you're doing your own, then you'd have to provide some temperature logs and stuff like that. And I don't know much about the Bokashi method. So you should, you should take some data. I mean, my only, me. my only research question or commitment <laughs> for the sake of being explicit about it is I would, I, I will promise right here, live on all the things we're live on Facebook, Zoom, whatever, uh, to look at soil that has not been treated with Bokashi the pH before treating it with Bokashi and the pH at the end of this growing season and next growing season. So that's, Way to bring it back to pH. Can, that's what we were talking about. I can commit to, I'm not going to, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of making sure compost is safe or uh, yeah, testing it for all the different pathogens. Yeah. Yeah. I won't over commit myself. Well, yeah. Let's, let's constrain our parameters to pH and I think we'll be okay. So, all right. Sorry, Micah. Oh, no, I was just going back to that FSMA produce safety rule, like maybe we could test it um, to bring that back to water. Um, this doesn't affect pH, but that is a concern with rain water catchment as well. Yep. That's considered a surface water source. And 
I've, <laughs> have you ever seen a building that seagulls just arbitrarily start to enjoy? <laughs> There's like no getting them off of them off those buildings, and the, yeah. the roofs can be pretty gross. Not a roof to catch water off of, I would suggest. Um, okay. So if you're if you're Go not ahead, putting the water directly on foliage and it's being applied directly to soil, is that the safety loophole? That might, um. yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can. Yep. If you okay. can be assured that it doesn't touch the edible portion of the crop and that the edible portion of the crop, um, basically it's not below ground, then that's mm-hmm. good. So like the two big ones that come to mind right off the bat are like carrots, radishes. You could drip irrigate those just like you would drip irrigate tomatoes. But if the water's dirty, that's still like a crop that is commonly eaten raw and it would be touching the edible part. So in those cases, that would be kind of a no-no. But for things like tomatoes, um, cucumbers, all those other things that grow above the ground, yeah, you don't you don't have to test that water. You run into some issues, though, where it's like, maybe you should. Like, maybe that's a good idea to do because things happen. Like, lines burst and just things can happen. And all of a sudden, oh, the edible part has been washed with this water, and I don't know anything about it other than that it came from a seagull poop roof. You know, something like that. But yeah, you got it there, buddy. <laughs> I was it. thinking somebody could uh, brand seagull poop roof water something <laughs> for seagull fans. I'll leave that up to Micah. Yeah, thanks. Or maybe flock of seagull fans. Just market it to the new wave team. Um, yeah. We got a question in the chat about why bacterial loads in water is a problem for root crops. Um it just has to do with harborage points and this, the bacteria isn't really like a problem for the plant. The plants don't care. We're talking about human pathogens here and human pathogens just exist on things until they get to where they want to be, which is in our dark, moist, warm guts. And when they're not there, they just hang out. And so they can sometimes proliferate in water, even if they're not in our guts. Um, But other times they just hang out, like I said. So if it's in that water, because it was also, it was in a bird gut and now it's on bird poop and now it's on water that ran over the bird poop and then it goes into a tank and then it goes into the soil and it goes onto a root. It just sits there. Um, And so, yeah, the Food Safety and Modernization Act was all put together to try to limit that kind of thing from happening. Because you can still wash your produce, right? That's always the last line of defense, but uh, I'm awfully guilty of not doing that. And so (laughs) I think many people are. And this this rule is... uh, aiming to combat that. So that's the reason. All right. I got, I want to move on to just a couple more questions while we have some time here. Um, maybe I'll try to get to some of them, what I would see as more important ones. We talked about a few systems. I want to make some space here for any that we haven't talked about, anything creative yet you've seen that has worked well for people. I mean, we talked about rain catchment. I really like the, can I keep growing Detroit's water catchment system setup that they have. Um, I like how they build those big tanks really high. It seems accessible. It addresses some issues I've seen with water pressure for irrigation yeah. on these vacant lots farms. Um, I've always been really impressed by that. Mm-hmm. I can't think of the name when people use like uh, the clay pots. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. I've never heard of a successful implementation of them, but I do know that their popularity is catching on. Um, And I'm not sure if there's a subsequent question to this one about ways to preserve moisture in the soil. 
There is great. That's okay. a great transition. So besides that, uh, we use a drip irrigation at the MSU site and that drip irrigation is just hooked up to the municipal um, system that supplies water to the site. Um, and then I try to use that as sparingly and as rarely as possible and just do rain dances as often as possible <laughs> June to August. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely operate from a use as little or be as dependent as possible on sources you can't control and maximize the rain catchment and the conservation of water and soil. Um, and then maybe another, another subsequent question is getting into plants that are more resistant to drought and um, less water, less high water maintenance. Uh, to that rain dance point, um, I know a few growers who do depend on God and mm-hmm. have said, I, I, I depend on like the nature to water our space yep. and some Classic years are good and some fed. years. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I'm, I'm very familiar with different regions of the state with different kind of base soil types. And there's even a r- amazing website for the uh, U.S. geological survey for um, soil types all over the United States with this incredible detail, but, urban centers are missed in that. And so soil types, I think, are a little um, not totally well understood sometimes in urban settings, but clay soil, for all the hate it gets, um, is pretty phenomenal at at holding on to moisture. And uh, I I know a lot of what what we call uh, dry land or rain-fed growers that operate on clay soil, and that is all they, yeah, that's all they depend on. Um, They might try to do some irrigation for some key crops like strawberries or melons or something like that but the rest is all just what is delivered and clay soil is really nice for that though i hear a lot of small-scale growers and gardeners just they just want to strike the earth of clay forever just make it sandy i'm like oh hold on here there's there's benefits (laughs) i think um that you can improve your clay soil and still get some of the benefits and it doesn't take that long it's only a couple years if by adding compost and that Mm -hmm. seemed to help keep moisture in the soil. Yep. Um, That's a whole other topic, but um, (laughs) compost as, um, as a mulch uh, and as a soil improvement tactic can improve water holding capacity over time, which can improve your irrigation efficiency over time in a, in a small scale setting. I think large additions of compost on a big farm are a little bit of a sticker shock and don't happen terribly often, but on smaller farms, I see it quite often, and growers are quite happy with, with doing it that way. And thanks for mentioning the drip irrigation, Naeem. That I, th- I really do think that's pretty much the cutting edge, the inefficiency that is out there. Um, for, for folks who aren't familiar with it, uh, it's not a soaker hose. Um, it's, it's flat tape with holes at predetermined uh, points on the tape, so it holds pressure really well from start to finish. Whereas soaker hoses are porous all the way around. And oftentimes on a long run with a soaker hose, most of the water falls out of the pipe in the beginning because it's completely porous and you end up with not enough water on the end. But drip tape solves that. And you can get a thicker drip tape, like 15 mil, all the way up to like 25 mil that last many seasons if you store them properly. Uh, the, the stuff that's around 6 mil, 10 mil, sometimes you, you won't get more than one season out of it. But you can target your purchases to last you a good long time. The Oyas that you mentioned, Naeem, have you, have you seen those in use? Uh, 
mm-hmm. the, the clay pots. So the, correct me if I'm wrong, there's a hole that is dug and the pot is put in the hole and then the pot is filled with water and because it's clay and it's porous, it kind of lets it out into the soil around it. Or the plants go to the surface of the pot, I think is like the roots go to the, they like coat the pot surface. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. Now so you want to, you want to plant or install the pot where you're going to have plants that need the water. So it's, it's, it's a very localized. And of course you can imagine with scale, if you have a, one raised bed, you would potentially have one Oya every maybe four, yeah, four square feet. So in a, in a four by eight raised bed, you would have six to eight Oyas. So okay. you're, and each Oya costs some amount of money unless you're a clay maker and you just make Oya. <laughs> but, um, so when Another you get use into for like, your clay soil. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you get into 30 foot rows and things like that, I, it's really, um, you know, I, I suppose it's really comes down to the user's ability to acquire. Yeah. And I'm thinking of when you said raised bed, I almost feel like they'd work best in a true raised, mm-hmm. raised bed, like built from wood. Because if you got it in a long row system, I think what you may be thinking about there is annual install and uninstall before mm-hmm. any type of soil tillage or anything like that, because you just break them. Right. But um, sounds like I know a lot of people have put on some new pandemic hobbies, and I think pottery is one of them. If someone, if there was an yeah. entrepreneurial pandemic uh, hobby uh, that could be converted into something in an urban farm setting, maybe Oya's is it. I would say the caveat is Oyas themselves, of course, are not water. <laughs> so once they're in the ground, the user has to still get a source of water into them consistently to uh. water. So it's not like, oh, I put a clay pot in the ground and all my plants are like around these clay pots. It's like it's falling from the sky or you're using a hose or a can or something and walking up to each one and filling them as often as they run out of water. How often do they run out of water? Like how often? Yeah. So, you know, I would say peak season, you would probably fill an Oya twice a month if it's uh, around this size or bigger. This is a 32 ounce, um, you know, water container. Um, so if it's if peak season, your soil's potentially bare or uncovered or there's plants on it, the sun is shining. It's like high 80s consistently. The water is evaporating out of the soil very rapidly um and the plants are drawing the water out of the oya so you know two times a month is not bad but Mm -hmm. the they're also um kind of the minimal amount of water that the plants are going to need so if you want like presumably i'm presuming that the yield of an oya dependent plant won't be as abundant as a plant that gets as much water as it wants but once again, if you're just trying to get some extra tomatoes for fun versus you want one tomato plant to give you five pounds or more, um, it's one more thing to, to be mindful of. Yeah, thanks for mentioning that. And, uh, gray water systems are the, uh, I guess, the off the radar <laughs> and off the radar sector within the system, because I would imagine almost all gray water systems are not legal, meaning no city government permits people to direct used water from their homes into a farm, or I think it's, it's actually illegal to separate it from the sewage system. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
But there are folks who may not choose to adhere to the written law and maybe your kitchen sink or um, I've even, I, I know of a person who's washing machine water. They use, you know, organic plant-based detergents. They direct that into a pool of uh, pea gravel and sand and some kind of algae. And then that is like a reused bathtub that water runs into something else. And then the water that they collect in the endpoint they use for watering um, their garden. So, you know, if you're a person who, I don't even know, as an MSU staff, I can't uh, condone such behavior. <laughs> yeah, I understand uh, with working on the produce safety rule. I, I don't hear those stories anymore now that I've transitioned from to oh, this yeah. rule. Now you're, a, now you're a narc, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, now I'm a narc. People are like, oh, no, we don't use that water. <laughs> Great. <laughs> um, have you seen any, like, people building catchment, like, surface water ponds in Detroit to keep water on the farm? I just know of one, and that project was probably in the, I'm going to say $15,000 range. So this pond is probably 15 feet across and six to eight feet deep. And um, I can't do the math, but it's a huge volume of water. I would imagine 10,000 gallons-ish, and it usually has water in it all year. And then a wind turbine or a windmill uh, drives the pumping of that water into a cistern, which is above ground, mm. feet. And then that cistern feeds a drip system, that feeds the rest of the farm. Um, Clever arrangement. That's old school. Mm-hmm. So that's the, I only know of one of those in Detroit. Um, and then that system, of course, is completely driven by rainwater. And once that pond is full, it's highly unlikely that it will dry up. Um, or if, if it dries up, humans as a, a species would probably have some other problems to be worried about. Uh, but that seems like if you have the money to front that, that's definitely in the scale that you need a huge pond for, of course, the smaller the pond, the more likely it will evaporate and dry up. So I would say if you're, if you have an acre or more, it's something worth considering. It sounds similar in cost to, to a, a well, a well to be dug. Um, Mm -hmm. And one way I've seen very, this is not common, but one way I've seen it, and Micah knows these folks too, for, for getting, um, uh, for pumping the water out of the the well is uh, solar power that, uh, and, and automation to some degree. Um, otherwise, you got to go out and turn it on manually each time. And that can really, that can also really wear a pump down too, if, if you're not careful about when you have it on and off. And just the start restart thing can really kill a pump quick. But uh, yeah, great. Well, thanks for mentioning Greywater. I, I was thinking we might talk about it earlier and we didn't get to it. So thanks for bringing us back around. Um, yeah, it's a, that's an interesting one. The phantom of the irrigation conversation. Yeah, I could, I could see, I could see it being appealing in a couple of ways. One, I mean, it's very nearly clean water, so it's like, oh, come on. But then, two, it's like you're, you're paying for it already. Like, if you're, if it's city water and you're paying sewage, uh, you might think like, hey, I'm paying like for it. Why not get my full value out of it? But. <laughs> I don't know. I could see that being interpreted that way. And it's like, yeah, but yeah, the potential for it is, is really high. Um, I'm sure there are engineers and folks who are looking into um, more sustainable ways to filter it. 
mm-hmm. well as um, simple ways to some of it really doesn't need filtering. Like if you're rinsing off, uh, I don't know, a plate that was in your cabinet because you're about to use it for dinner, the water that hits that and flows into the drain is arguably just as clean, if not cleaner than the water that flows through a hose that you might leave outside and you connect it to your spigot. Um, so there are multiple forms of gray water. Some people, you might run the water while you're brushing your teeth, although you shouldn't, or leave the shower running so it gets real hot before you hop in there. <laughs> add up to gallons of water that really touch nothing but hopefully clean surfaces from the time they come out of the system. And that water could be captured and easily used to feed plants, but we haven't yet figured out yeah. the, best way, the safest way to do that. Well, this whole system of, of urban agriculture is, is, is new in our timeline, right? And look at all the advances that have been made in terms of access and, and um, on, in listening and understanding and, and letting it happen. This could be the next frontier. It's, it sounds like it could be um, another, another way to go about making these systems successful with you know, thinking of it appropriately from all angles, scientifically, food safety, all that it seems like it would be great to catch any kind of gray water from a wash pack. And if that could be reused, because wouldn't that just, if you're not using sanitizers, go back into the same space. Mm-hmm. Seems possible. Yeah, the volume in an urban area of water that is wasted, that doesn't touch anything dirty or contaminated is like enough to fill stadiums sometimes, you know? So um, it would be very valuable if any listeners or any people who might feel the energy of this conversation can help us get to that point sooner than later. For sure. That would be, wow. Yeah. All right. yeah. I think that's, I think that's a good note to end on. Uh, <laughs> this show is put on by the Great Lakes Vegetable Producers Network, which is a group of extension educators and researchers from across the Great Lakes region. We're sponsored by the North Central Integrated Pest Management Center. And uh, we do this every Wednesday, uh, same time, 1230 Eastern time, 1130 Central time. Uh, We're going to do this all the way through September and uh, talking about different topics as they come up through the season. Next week, Ben Whirling is going to be interviewing Brad Burgerford from Ohio State University and Nathan Johaning from University of Illinois. Oh, did I say Illinois? I did. University of Illinois where they discuss preseason pumpkin tips. Okay. This is a hot one. Mm-hmm. This is a hot one. I think we had the most yeah, live really. attendees ever when these two guys were on last year. So maybe we can repeat that success. Um, oh, and for people who are going to be listening to the podcast, you've got a special thing coming up, a sea shanty all about accessing water in a city. So enjoy that. Hopefully it recaps some of the things we went through in a, in a shorter time frame. Thanks again, Naeem and Micah. I really Thanks, appreciate Ben. It. Thank you, Ben. You have a good rest of the week. Thanks. Likewise. You too. Take care. Okay. See ya. And here's the city water shanty. Oh, what can you do when you can't get water? What can you do when you can't get water? What can you do when you can't get water? Farming in a city. 
hook up to your house and pay the piper hook up to the house and pay the piper hook up to the house and pay the piper farming in a city what do you do when you can't get water what can you do when you can't get water what can you do when you can't get water farming in a city Use an RPZ on a fire hydrant. Use an RPZ on a fire hydrant. Use an RPZ on a fire hydrant. Farming in the city. What can you do when you can't get water? What can you do when you can't get water? What can you do when you can't get water? Farming in a city. Catch it off the roof in a big old barrel. Catch it off the roof in a big old barrel. Catch it off a roof with a big old barrel. Farming in the city. What can you do when you can't get water? What can you do when you can't get water? What do you do when you can't get water? Farming in a city. Dig a new well, call 811 first. Dig a new well, call 811 first. Dig a new well, call 811 first. Farming in a city. What can you do when you can't get water? What can you do when you can't get water? What can you do when you can't get water? Farming in a city. Have it trucked in with a garden program. Have it trucked in with a garden program. Have it trucked in with a garden program. Farming in a city. That's what we do when we can't get water. That's what we do when we can't get water. That's what we do when we can't get water. Farming in a city.